1: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome
0: to Coronapod.
1: In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID 19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic.
0: Entering a new era now. We have new COVID
1: strategies. There's some new unknowns, and we've got a vaccine. Hello, and welcome to CoronaPod. I'm Noah Baker, and joining me this week is one of Nature's editors, Helen Pearson. Helen, how are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. Hi, Noah. So,
1: this is your first time on Coronapod. It is, yes. For people that haven't heard your voice before, tell us, what is it that you do here at Nature?
0: Well, my role's changed recently, so I used to run the whole of the team at Nature, which produces our journalism and our opinion content and our fantastic podcasts, of course. But now I have moved into a different role, and I'm doing a little bit more reporting and, and editing.
1: I have to say, it's exciting for me to get what was my boss on Coronapod. God, no. um, so over the course of more than two years of pods, now, we've spent a lot of time talking about the health impacts of the pandemic. Everything from death to disability, mental health, But one huge impact of the pandemic that we really haven't touched on yet is the impact on education. And that's what you have written a feature about recently. Tell us, how big is this impact?
0: It's really monumentally large, as became clear as I looked into this. So according to efforts from various UN agencies, about 1.6 billion students around the world have been affected by school closures, which is pretty much all of the school children, basically. And really, the data is, is just coming in on the full consequences of those closures but what we, we can measure is kind of how long schools were closed and it works out at about an average of four and a half months Um, across all countries. But of course, there's enormous variation. Some countries had their schools closed for over a year, some countries it's been a month. And amazingly, some countries the schools are still not completely open.
1: And aside from just the scale of this impact, I think it's hard to overstate just how important education is, sort of economically, culturally, there are huge potential fallouts.
0: That's right. And I mean, I would never minimise just the awful impacts, you know, that the pandemic's had on on people's health and and so many deaths. But I mean, some people say that the this impact on children's education, which will leave lifelong scars effectively, is potentially one of the biggest or longest lasting impacts that this pandemic will have. I mean, somebody I spoke to called it a generational loss.
1: And of course, there will be some people that missed the last years of their schooling, for example, so they then won't go back to school. That's something that will never be caught back up again.
0: And of course, the impacts really vary. At the beginning of the pandemic, when schools were closing, there were these predictions that the children who were the most disadvantaged or in the poorest households were going to be the ones who who felt the consequences the most. And now the data is kind of showing that to be unfortunately true. So in rich countries, we're seeing that the educational inequality. Between the better off children and the worse off children is kind of widening. And then children in the poorest countries of the world are really suffering the most. Often that's where the longest closures have been. And that's where some children who leave school will end up getting married younger or going into the workforce younger and never going back to school at all.
1: And what you've done in this feature is you've tried to look at the data that exists, the research that exists about how some of these kind of massive impacts might be tackled, how we can try to sort of claw back some of what has been lost over the last two years. And the first thing that was sort of surprising to me, I suppose, although maybe it's not surprising, is that research isn't necessarily at the forefront of many people's minds when it comes to the policy decisions around this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting field, you know, which I've been learning about, too, in terms of educational research. And it's certainly a very different um, picture to how we might think about medical research, for example. So if you think about medicine, then typically if there's a new therapy or drug, then it would be tested in rigorous, randomized controlled trials before we said, okay, this actually is effective and safe. Let's use it in the population. And in education, there are a lot of randomized controlled trials as well and other rigorous studies, which can show when you look at a body of evidence, which approaches tend to be more effective. Although it doesn't necessarily always give, give clear cut answers, but there tends to be quite a big gap between the research which is coming out and what's actually being kind of used um, in the classroom. And policymakers, you know, from, from, from the reporting I did, have much more leeway to just say, well, this is how we think education ought to be done. And that's that rather than perhaps looking at what the most effective ways to teach children are.
1: Yeah, I was really interested in the kind of comparison with medical research, because in many ways, there are a lot of parallels here, right? So in education and in in clinical research, you can do randomised control trials to assess the impact of a therapy or a teaching approach and so on. But also within that kind of broader scheme, there are practitioners, so clinicians, and there are teachers who are able to uh, use their own experience of what might work and try to, you know, in clinical terms, you might talk about prescribing drugs off label, for example. In education, you might talk about using techniques that teachers have seen to work in their own experience. The difficulty is that in teaching, it seems considerably harder to quantify the results than it is in medicine. In medicine, someone's ill, they get better. In teaching, how do you quantify if your teaching approach is working?
0: It is very hard. It's a much more complex environment in which to do an experiment because each child is different, each classroom is different, you know, teachers and schools and what's happening in one country is different to what's happening in another. So I think the challenge in in educational research, a lot of people have said this to me, is that even if you do do a really rigorous study and these studies are done and they're very, very good and you get an approach which looks to be effective, it shows that it worked in that particular setting and it can be very difficult to draw Back and say, well, okay, now we definitely know that that will work in another setting compared to medicine, say, where you know most human bodies are kind of similar. There are big caveats around that, of course, because different populations are different. But in general, it's a little bit easier to translate those those results. And just to go back to your point about teachers and experience, so teachers' experience is absolutely, you know, fundamentally important, and it's really critical. I think not to suggest that teachers don't know what they're doing; they really know what they're doing, and that's a kind of another challenge. Is it's already. In medicine, you know, you've got a kind of sick person and your goal is to make them better. But in education, you could argue, you know, in many countries, it's a really, really healthy system already. So how do you measure a sort of small improvement that you might get by implementing a different technique?
1: So you've gone away and you've tried to look into some of the research that's been done here, of which there is a lot, as you've mentioned. Tell me, where do you go as a reporter to find that out? You know, who have you been talking to?
0: Well, there's a vast array of fantastic educational researchers. And interestingly, over the last kind of maybe 20 to 30 years or so, there's also been a sort of big push to bring together all of the research that's been done into kind of banks of randomised control trials and systematic reviews, which is the way that you look at a, a whole body of evidence to really try and, you know, draw out whether an approach is working. And there's one organization in the UK called the Education Endowment Foundation, which I've become very interested in, which has become a leader in the field of trying to synthesize research in this way and has the most fantastic resource, which a huge number of schools actually in England already use, which sort of gives best buys for education. So if you're a head teacher, when you've got a little bit of money to spend, then how can you invest that in order to get kind of the most learning, the most bang for your buck? it's a fantastic kind of easy to use resource that you can look through and kind of see, well, do I get more investing in school uniform? The answer to that, by the way, is no. Or do I get more, you know, learning for my money if I invest in really good techniques to improve reading comprehension or effective feedback to students, which the answer to that is yes, (laughs) but those seem to be a couple of the more effective techniques.
1: I think that really speaks to just how varied the options are here you know there's a really brilliant graphic in your feature i'd really encourage people to go and look at it which sort of tries to weigh up some of these different approaches and they really range from school uniforms to smaller class sizes through to different types of feedback i mean the number of kind of treatment options are huge if you were to pick top 2 if you were the education minister in this country where does research suggest head teachers should be investing their money
0: well you know i'm not going to give you a definitive answer to that <laughs> Because it's going to depend on the school and the children that you're teaching and, you know, their backgrounds and all these things. But I did put that to, to some of the people I interviewed. So let's go back to COVID for a minute. So you've got this very specific. Situation where lots of children have been set back and you need to act quickly, one of the most cost-effective interventions all this previous research has shown is one-to-one tutoring or small group tutoring. Whereas some of the other very, very effective techniques, for example, giving children useful feedback or developing a skill called metacognition, which is where you encourage children to kind of really become aware of their own learning, to plan their own learning, to think about their own learning. Those are effective, but they're quite sort of complex. So that's one reason that tutoring has become a response, a kind of focus of the response in, in some countries, including the UK, but um, also in the US and others.
1: And that, I suppose, is very much because... You know, trying to ramp up getting a load of tutors in and giving that that access to those tutors seems to be something that's kind of easy to imagine logistically how you do that.
0: Well, it, it, I mean, it's, it sounds easy, but...
1: It's not, is it?
0: <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily easy because loads of money has been poured into tutoring in the UK. And it's become quite controversial because it sort of shows the challenges, actually, that you can have something which on paper looks really, really effective. But if you try to implement that across an entire country very, very fast, we don't necessarily get the results we want, or it's difficult to sort of reach all children. So there's a lot of conversation about that now. And hopefully, children will benefit from it in the end. But it's certainly gone through a lot of teething troubles.
1: Absolutely. And you can run the risk of exacerbating those educational gaps within society, you might end up with the people that need the tutoring the most not getting access to it. And so you really need to think about this in a holistic way.
0: Yeah, that's been exactly the concern raised is is that the tutoring isn't necessarily reaching the disadvantaged pupils or the ones who, who've fallen behind the most. And lots of people say that whatever you put into place, now or in the future, the way to really improve education system is to focus on the children who are from the more difficult backgrounds or who are falling behind and, and lift those up to where we want everybody to be.
1: One thing that I noticed when reading your feature is that this huge, huge problem that we have with relation to COVID and the, the loss of education during pandemic has actually highlighted broader issues you know it may well be that in many cases these schools were not performing particularly well in the first place and the educational research one of my favorite words in the english language pedagogy what a great word that is could be a really good way to come out of the pandemic with perhaps uh, an even better more evidence-based approach to education we've heard the phrase build back better so many times is that going to happen
0: i <laughs> I think it's going to be variable. So you're absolutely right. You know, some education systems are already in a, in a sorry state. And of course, there's all kinds of problems which are battering education systems and, and children, quite aside from COVID that we need to remember. Wars and conflict and, and all kinds of things. But on the kind of positive side, if you can say that as COVID, you know, did hit schools, then schools had to change really, really fast, right? And they adopted all these new techniques. So all of a sudden there was much more digital learning and remote learning. And parents, even though it was difficult, and I speak from personal experience, you know, we did become more engaged in our children's learning at home. And teachers became more involved in the kind of social and emotional lives of their pupils. And some of those changes were probably very positive, now, it's a little unfortunate that a lot of this has happened so quickly that it hasn't necessarily been studied, you know, as carefully as it might to sort of work out, sort of quantify how beneficial those those things were. But there's certainly, you know, a feeling that there is this moment at which it's, it's possible to, to make change. And so, so the point of looking at evidence is not just around what can we do now to support children? It's around, as you said, you know, building back better or building back in a more evidence-based way so that evidence perhaps is integrated more routinely into education. Education. And that that's starting to happen. So there, there are the examples that I came across in in Panama, where teachers, as a consequence of the pandemic, are you know learning more about evidence based techniques in their own training, and even at, at Harvard at the School of Education, then students there as they learn to be teachers are now learning more about the evidence base. So it's sort of you know going in a positive direction, but it's obviously a huge huge way to go.
1: And you mentioned this already, but it's also important to remember that although we're moving in this direction, and one of the things which is really fundamentally important here is for teachers and pod- policymakers and educators more broadly to be taught about how the research process works in their training so they can have a better understanding of how to bring research into their work. There are many, many reasons that that can also be difficult. There's a really powerful quote that ends your feature where you have a teacher saying, you know, if I'm choosing between marking my year 12's work... And reading a paper and I've got no time available, I know where I'm going to put my my resource there. And it just speaks to these broader issues that the education systems around the world have been facing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I had a really, you know, interesting conversation with the teacher I wrote about in in the feature, who's in Australia, just about the just enormous challenges that the school has faced over the last two years trying to keep students engaged, trying to support them, you know, all kinds of problems as they were coming back to school. And they're really, really exhausted. She was talking about how colleagues were quitting because they were so exhausted. And I do think it's really important um, that there isn't some sense that evidence needs to be kind of forced down the throats of teachers. I mean, that just doesn't work. I mean, that's true across loads of fields. You can't just sort of present evidence and say, "Go, go away and use it. Uh, which I think is why this training technique is perhaps more promising, because then it just becomes part of what you're doing every day. Just as we said at the beginning, you know, as doctors are learning about evidence as they're coming through through medical school. That's obviously a challenge for all countries, all schools at the moment. Like, how do we just keep the show on the road, make sure our children are happy and supported and comfortable and learning? It makes it very, very difficult to make, you know, very large changes and i guess that's the tension which we have to grapple with
1: absolutely it's a fascinating area to talk about and to be honest i am surprised that we haven't spoken about it before i'm sure we'll be speaking about it again but for now helen let's leave it there thank you so much
0: thanks noah it's been a pleasure
1: hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget